Welcome to another edition of the Insurance Requirements Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Carell. I'm excited to welcome Ron Glosman, CEO of Chisel AI, to the studio. He quite literally built his company while he should have been studying at university. The difference between him and the rest of us is that the software he was building would study for him. Yeah, he taught his computer to read his textbooks and produce a chapter outline he could then study for his exams. That sounds like every college student's dream. We then dive into how he grew chisel.ai from the first iteration, break down machine learning and artificial intelligence in terms even I can understand, and how that helps the insurance industry become much more accurate and efficient. Before we wrap up, I asked Ron to share some advice to founders seeking funding during a pandemic. And now, on to the show. Ron Bosman, CEO of Chisel AI, thank you for joining us today on Insurance Requirements. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Absolutely. Wanted to start off talking about your path to entrepreneurship. I'm personally very fascinated with how you came to start and grow Chisel AI, but it seems like it was a, a long journey in the making, right? You didn't set out to start an insure tech company. I want to start back in your college days. You studied both business and computer science concurrently, which sounds like a really, really hard caseload. Was entrepreneurship always in the cards for you or did you have other expectations going into university? It certainly wasn't an expectation going in. As mentioned, I was studying for a double degree and I was in my third year. And at the time I was studying, as you said, computer science and business. It was exam season about November. And I thought to myself that studying is just really inefficient. There has to be a better way Textbooks are 1,000 pages, 2,000 pages, and exam is 10 pages, 20 pages. If you do the math, that's like one, maybe 2% of the content. I said, what if I could teach a computer how to read and create summaries of textbooks? What I want is a one-page summary for every chapter in the book. So reduce the content maybe from 100 pages or 50 pages a chapter down to 10 or one, sorry. Being a computer science student, I said, that sounds pretty simple. Hint, it was not, but I said, that sounds pretty simple. And I set out to work on it. I worked on it for about a semester and I got it to the point where I could take any textbook, primarily in the computer science and uh, business uh, area studies, run it through the software and it would generate for me a, cha- uh, a summary, one per chapter, one page per chapter, got to the point where I could in four hours take a, a, a uh, look at the basically the textbook, take the exam and get an A without ever having to go to lecture, without actually having to read the textbook myself. And obviously that was a great accomplishment. It allowed me to have one of the best summers of my life. And I loved that time. And my friends heard about it and they said, hey, can you put it out on the app store? And at the time I put it out on the Google Chrome web store as a plugin for your Chrome. So you could just log in and when you're studying and upload the textbook. And I kept working on it for two years as a hobby. It went on to be named one of the 50 best apps for students of all time. It it ended up having, in the first uh, two weeks alone, signups from over 33 of the top Ivy League schools in the world. We're talking Princeton, Stanford, Harvard, Yale. It was in Russia, China, India, Brazil, Portugal, Switzerland, Netherlands. Quite successful, but students don't have a lot of discretionary income. 
around 2016 timeframe, I was invited to a machine learning conference. It was actually a, a bank, RBC bank, which was hosting a conference. And they said, want you to come and talk about natural language processing. And uh, natural, natural language processing is the ability for a computer to read and understand text like a human, the technology that we used back then and still to this day use. I came, I presented on this panel, and about five minutes after I get off stage, an email comes in through the contact form on our homepage. And it says, hi, just saw you present. I know this is an app for students, but I think insurance can really benefit. Do you have five minutes to chat? Long story short, that email came from one of the biggest brokers in the world who in three months cut me a $50,000 check to take that technology from being an app that read textbooks and taught teaching it how to read policies and binders specifically to help them reduce errors and emissions. That was the starting point. Worked on that for about a year and a half and applied to the Zerk Innovation World Championship, which happened last year. And after three rounds of competition across multiple geographic regions, we ended up taking home the gold medal for what Zurich called the most innovative insurance underwriting solution in the world. And that was for something we called submission intake. Today, we've been about three to four years focused exclusively on the insurance space. But to answer your question, it's not something that I envisioned. I thought I would finish my degree and probably be a programmer, likely as a full-time job, maybe um, in management as far as technology, but certainly not this. <laughs> Is this the first problem that you've solved like that? Have you had other businesses in the past? Was this your first foray into the startup? So I've had the pleasure of working for startups of my university education. I got to work for two different startups, a machine vision learning one and one that had to do with um, advertising, the advertising and marketing space. So I was always sort of lucky in that sort of perspective. I also had the chance to work for some big banks like Manulife, John Hancock was a company that I used to work for. But I, w I would certainly say that this is by far the most successful probably startup that I've, it's bigger than the startups I've worked in in the past. And I myself also to try to, to have sort of a small scale startup, even prior to this one, when I was 14. So you got to remember, this was uh, like more than uh, a decade ago now, there was no Spotify. And I said to myself, piracy is one of the biggest problems in the internet. Statistically speaking back then, 19 out of every 20 song downloads was illegal. So if you do the math on a, like, at the time it's like a multi 10 billion plus dollar industry music sales, knowing that 19 times out of 20, like it's only 5% of the market. I said, what if we just get people to listen to ads and in exchange, they get to stream music for free. We got more than a hundred thousand songs from over a thousand different artists on the platform. Obviously it never grew to be quite as successful as Spotify. Like you don't hear about it, <laughs> but it, it was an, it was a good learning experience and a, it was a break even company. So we never lost money on that investment, but it was definitely a good learning experience. As far as those learning experiences go, what were some of the, the lessons that you learned in the, the first few years of, of building out Chisel, taking it from the textbook reading application that it started out as to a policy and binder reading software in building the business, what were some of the lessons that you learned? It's interesting. I would say none of it, and I've, none of it would, I would 
put down to necessarily technology. I think, yes, technology is great and important, but the big things were building relationships and networking, especially in the insurance industry, because sales cycles are so long and people often move like one, one year they'll work at Zerk and the next year they might work at CNA and that's not really a job. And you want to make sure that you build relationships. You obviously deliver on what you promise. And that was by far probably the biggest lesson was just how hard it was to network. Unlike a B2C company, which is something that I might've been more familiar with or business to consumer instead of business to business. It's a very different aspect where business to consumer, you just need to have something that looks shiny and performs well. And people will likely download and install and play it versus a business app. It could be, I've seen some business apps that are like from 1990 and still have the user interface, like many of core banking systems but are in COBOL, right? Like it's been around for a long time. Nobody wants to throw it out. And that's why COBOL engineers get paid like crazy. It's a very rare skill set. But at the same time in a business, they care more about risk. How, how risky is it for me to replace my whole underwriting system or my whole credit issuance system versus just paying a little bit more in maintenance? They'll always go with maintenance. It's really, really hard to get through that cycle. I've, I would say I've learned a lot on the business side. As far as technology is concerned, it's definitely a regulated industry. I don't think anybody's sort of surprised. In some sense, I, I think it's a little, they're, I would say, on the surface, equally as regulated as banks, but I found it a lot easier uh, to be compliant, at least in the commercial insurance space. You don't have as much concerns with personal information. Of course, when you do personal lines, you get into all the great stuff about PII, but when you do commercial insurance, there's a lot less PII. From a technology perspective, security perspective, there've also been some lessons there. But by and large, I would say it's been building relationships. It's been understanding the core problem. We employ four or five people full time as basically who were former underwriters as on our staff to help us understand because oftentimes there's expertise. Somebody who spent 20 years underwriting an auto is going to know and have a very different skill set and tell us how to build an app very differently than 20 years in underwriting property versus five years on cyber because nobody's written cyber for 20 years. Right. But there have been some changes there, but I would say not as big as, as the business. How do you tackle that? You had mentioned that the insurance industry, especially for carriers who've been around for a long time, their systems are built on older technologies like Cobalt, and there's usually a large barrier to making a change. How do you navigate that? Does your platform interface with the older systems? Is it a fresh start? How do you sell them on that? I think if I had the answer, I'd be a lot richer. <laughs> I'll start with maybe the basics. One of the most important things is you got to find the right buyer persona, right? So we're very, very stringent on our customer profiles. So there's 180 plus major carriers or not major, but carriers in the United States and, and Canada alone. Doesn't mean we're interested in talking to all of them. Not that I, I would ever turn down a call. So if you want to call me, please do. But as far as our marketing dollars, for example, we have a very targeted buyer persona. We typically go for like VP ops or COO, very, very senior. Some, op some, some applications are typically sold bottom up where you give a free trial to the users. And then once the users love it, they go to management and they try to convince management. I found in the insurance world, the buying decision is typically from the top down rather than from the bottom up. We'll typically go for that decision maker. We'll build a strong business case. 
I think that's very, very important. Many companies do innovation for the sake of innovation to check a box saying, hey, I did a project with an AI vendor. Hey, I tried it and it didn't work. Or hey, I tried and it did work. And no matter what, it doesn't matter if it did or it didn't, it's not going to progress because there was no business case built. So building a business case, having executive sign off. And then the third piece I would say is trying to have as few, at least in the beginning, as few integration points as possible, because oftentimes integrations into back systems can take a long time. And that's really where projects can get tied down. So if you can do an MVP that actually is in some sense a standalone software, they prefer that rather than a hot swap, which is a lot more difficult. They would rather just have both of them simultaneously and then eventually phase one out rather than just like, we're going to buy and put something else in. We found that to be a much more successful sales strategy. And really it also comes down to, I think, to the right person on the other side. It's also a big investment from the incumbent, whether you're a broker or an underwriter or a carrier, whatever, reinsurance company. It's going to take time to collect data, especially if we're talking about machine learning projects like the ones that we do. It's a big investment on their side. We realize that. And companies need to be ready and willing to make that investment. And if they're not, they're setting themselves up for failure. So that's another thing that as a startup, uh, you should be watching for is making sure that you're working with the right people and they're going to put the resources in the project and vice versa as an incumbent. You got to be there and you got to understand that there it's not just like here's the data and i'll see you in two months it's oftentimes a little more involved in that if you're not willing to do that that's okay but then don't also engage in a project because you're setting yourself up for failure digging into the ai the natural language processing part of your name is artificial intelligence can you give us a brief overview of what that really is, especially natural language processing? For sure. So at the very, very core, I'll use a different word, which is machine learning, which is to me, at least the more scientific term. And there's a reason I use it. But as far as artificial intelligence, there's seven branches of it. And the first one is actually machine learning. And that is, is the most probably fundamental aspects. So machine learning, you can go to university, study and get a PhD or a, a master's degree in, and it works on developing new types of artificial intelligence, new training techniques. For example, there's a uh, supervised learning techniques, unsupervised reinforcement learning, deep learning, neural networks, all that great stuff. That's where all of the great sort of academic research goes and that's where the breakthroughs happen as far as core technology but machine learning is more fundamental science the other types of artificial intelligence all apply machine learning to a specific problem for example natural language processing is the application of machine learning to the problem of text very very specifically to the problem of text and there's four main problems that they try to solve question answer systems probably very familiar google Google gives you a different answer depending on your location, your gender, your search history. Like it's artificial intelligence. It's not the same Google maybe as 20 years ago where it worked the same for everybody. So it's a question answer system. We're probably all familiar, but we don't think of it as artificial intelligence. It is. Another great one is uh, machine translation. 
we're probably familiar English to French, French to Spanish, Spanish to Portuguese, whatever. And then what we have the last two, and that's primarily what we search, uh, focus on in, in Chisel is content identification and extraction. Being able to identify, for example, all of the people, the places, the things, the monetary values and documents, and then being able to understand the relationship between them. This is the parent corporation. It has six subsidiaries. This subsidiary actually has a second subsidiary. This is how the risk is split across them. This is how it stacks. All of that great context. That's a, another type of machine learning. Or sorry, artificial intelligence. Then you have uh, machine vision. That's another main aspect of artificial intelligence. So machine vision is just being able to identify object identification. And that's probably Tesla. Like that's what most people think of self-driving cars. Then we have things like uh, robotics. Robotics would be like the building of humanoid like shapes. And that's probably where people start to get a little queasy and think of the Terminator. But oftentimes you can think of it as, and not every car manufacturer thinks to use this, but you can think of it as like an arm that builds cars in a plant. It doesn't even look like a human necessarily. It's just really good at building cars, really like putting a door on a car really fast. And the AI is if the cars maybe one inch forward or one, one inch back, if they don't have an exact place where they park it every time, the arm needs to be able to articulate and to put it into place if it's one inch further or one inch closer. Some other examples of artificial intelligence also include just-in-time systems. So in the past, just in time was done again on a statistical model, which is what machine learning is and artificial intelligence in the, is at its core. Just in time is another great use of that. To summarize across the seven types of artificial intelligence, it starts with machine learning, which is the core research, and then moves on to applications, whether that's text, speech, vision, or humanoid-like shapes. Those are some of the main types of artificial intelligence applications that we see. It's all very fascinating. What I take away from that is that artificial intelligence is probably more prevalent in our lives than we give it credit for. I've seen the, the commercials where, where Ford gives you the, the behind the, the scenes look at their factories and there's the, the robotic arms. So how does that translate into what you're doing? One key component that I hear a lot of feedback from founders that are going through the insurance buying process, when they're choosing their broker, one of the key things that they're looking for is somebody who can provide them with multiple coverage options, and then give them a breakdown and comparison of how does one differentiate from the other and what might be the best choice for you. Does Chisel have a, a component of your software that, that does that for brokers? I've certainly heard the same ask. It's definitely something that the platform is capable of, and we're working on, on an MVP right now for what we're going to call it, which is going to be quote compare. And that, that we're going to release in the end of Q1 of 2020. So we're about four to five months out from the release of that to the general market. But certainly that is something we already have a working demo of. And one customer who's our uh, beachhead customer is starting to work with it now. And it will be generally available in a couple of months. And then on the broker side, you had mentioned that the Chisel AI does a policy review and, and binder review. What does that look like for a broker? Run me through the need for that. Where, where does a human do this primarily and how can Chisel help? Think of this as what happens immediately post bind. This, this is still part of the uh, policy insurance process. It's pre-claim. 
but post buy it. And what happens is you've gone to market, you've already done the quote comparison, you have advised your client as to your recommendation. And they said, yes, let's bind our insurance with carrier A, as they'll then typically issue a binder. And that's it. That's sort of your proof of insurance for the next 60 to 90 days until you get the full policy wording. So you're already insured. The policy's in effect. You don't have the full wording. And one of my favorite stories was I was talking with a large broker who was telling me this. And he said, I called one of our biggest clients. I invited them to our annual dinner, seven figure premium. So they want to make sure this client gets treated really well, white gloves. And they go and they show up to dinner and they wine and dine them. They say, all righty, Frankie. Let's talk about next year's renewal. And he turns to him and he says, we'll talk about next year's renewal when I get last year's policy wording. It had been 365 days and they never actually delivered the policy. And he was a little sarcastic, but it was definitely a little bit of, of a sharp comment. That just goes to show that clients do care about it. And the last thing you want is to have a mistake, an errors and omissions mistake between the policy and the binder, which happens quite often, unfortunately. The goal would be 60 to 90 days later when you receive the policy back. Today, most brokers will spend roughly two to four hours taking the binder and the policy and giving it a glance over to make sure that the name insured matches, the principal address matches, all of the vehicles, let's say it's a commercial fleet property, all of the vehicles and the VINs are correct, all the limits, the deductibles, all of that great stuff. And it can take, as I said, two to four hours. And unfortunately, humans do make mistakes. And that's when you get into payouts. And that's never something that people are, are happy about. With, with Chisel, what happens is it gets integrated typically right into the email inbox. It all happens autonomously in the background. It would receive the binder on day zero, and then it, it's, it's monitoring the policy. It knows that there is a binder attached to this policy number, but there's no policy attached. And it monitors the emails, and literally within 30 seconds of that email coming in, it has done the check and pro- produced a checklist that a human can then review. The difference being that today, we all obviously have a queue of our emails. Like I'm not going to have 2000 emails unread right now that I might need to get to, not necessarily certain. But what happens is they might miss it, right? Like Frankie, where the guy just never gets it. Or they'll spend four to five days working through the backlog. Then they'll finally get to that policy. Then they'll read it and produce a checklist. The difference is the AI does it 30 seconds from the time the email comes in every time because it monitors the inbox in real time. It produces the checklist. And for the human to review the checklist that the machine made is 30 minutes rather than the two to four hours that they would have done. You can think of it as a search space reduction problem, where instead of having to check every single data point and be like, where's the premiums and where's the limits? It actually color codes it for you, saying limits are green, deductible is red, it doesn't match. And then you can just read that color coded, what we would call it, the color coded marked up policy and the marked up binder. And based off that, make an informed decision in 30 minutes where it used to take you hours. And that also frees up those brokers and those agents to provide more value to their customer. Now, instead of spending four hours reading the document, they can call the customer saying, I got your document. It looks good. In fact, next year, let's talk about getting you a better, whatever, co-insurance or retention limit. And that's how you build a relationship rather than doing checking between paperwork, which is not fun and doesn't really add value to the client. Looking back on where you got started, I can see the evolution, right? You started with 
reading a textbook and giving me the most valuable information to, to understand the content. And all those years later, you're now doing that, but with a different textbook, right? <laughs> you, you, looking at most policies, you would probably think it's a textbook but that does the same thing. And I can definitely see how that would be much more valuable than using the, the, the human hours in freeing up humans to do what they do best, being, being true knowledge workers rather than doing those rote tasks. Stepping back from insurance and putting back on our startup hats, this is, we're recording this in the full grips of a global pandemic, but most tech startups are thankfully still, still around, still doing business. And like most startups still need fundraising. I wanted to, to talk about that and it's a very different time right now, but companies still need to raise funds. What does, what's it look like now in, in a space where you're not meeting face-to-face anymore? You don't have the, the big in-person pitch competitions. What does fundraising look like during a pandemic now? In some ways it changed for the better, I would say. And, and in some ways it's definitely an, a, a hurdle to overcome. And I think it, it in some sense also depends on your geographic region. You know, if you live in Canada, for example, we can't travel to the United States right now, except for a few defined reasons that, that people can find, which makes it very hard for us, for example, to raise money from the United States. We got to do everything remote mm-hmm. versus a startup in California can still take a meeting they can wear a mask. It could be a socially distant meeting, but they definitely have an advantage. So I would say I found that fundraising is now a lot more geographically based in some sense, although people are doing Zoom meetings. So I found it interesting. And I know a couple of startups and a couple of VCs that have done fully remote. So they never actually met up in person. That's okay. But by and large, I would say not every single company is open to that. And it means you got to rely more on your network in your geographic region, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And often, at least in my experience, it's interesting. Investments, investors, investment companies, VCs have to spend or allocate a certain amount of their fund every year. They have allocation goals. So in some sense, the money hasn't dried up. Smart investors are still investing in good business. I would say that they're being more selective probably with the risks. They're making less bets and sometimes smaller bets. Although in some cases they're also doubling down. I know the interesting thing is a lot of companies are starting to reserve more follow on capital because of the pandemic. So traditionally a fund will reserve some portion of their fund capital to investing in the company in the next round or maybe in multiple subsequent rounds. They are starting to put aside more money, even just to do like what we call bridge rounds. So just to get the company through, because if your business plan accounted for 10 new customers and you only added five because of Corona, you're in a bit of a tough space. Some insurance VC companies are investing in their existing investments rather than other investments because they're going to say, well, I've already spent $5 million on this. Let me spend another $2 million to try and bridge the gap versus just making a new $5 million investment in somebody else. Not always true. I just want to clarify, but I have found that a lot more companies are reserving money. 
They're following on more because they realize that it's an unprecedented time. And everybody is asking for more runway than ever. The standard back in, in sort of a, even a year ago was 18 months capital or so 18 months runway on a capital raise. Nowadays, people want 24 months or more, I'm finding, on the same amount raised. So they're not giving you any more money. They're saying, I want you to be more capital efficient. So I've seen sort of less aggressive growth plans as a result, which is good in a, in a downturn economy. Uh, I think it's more realistic. It's good. So do you think this is a response solely to the global pandemic or was this something that had been brewing and this was a, an accelerant? It's interesting. I think it's a mix of both. Uh, from one, on one hand, yes, I think people are getting a bit wary of vaporware and people just throwing around buzzwords and claiming to do things that didn't. And there were some funny headlines about companies adding blockchain to their, to their company name and they like triple their valuation overnight. So yes, people are starting to be more smart about that. Like that doesn't happen as often. On the flip side though, I'd have to look at the most recent statistics, but before the pandemic, the insure tech investment was growing very rapidly. One of the largest, fastest growing sectors for VCs to be investing in. So I don't know if that's changed, if there's been a catalyst in the reverse direction, but people are more cautious. But I think there, there's more money than ever. I think there's more money than ever. I do think they're more cautious about how they spent it, but I wouldn't say that there's been a, a decrease in appetite. As it relates to the round of funding, either a C, Series A, Series B, Series C, what's been the shift in mentality and in appetite um, for those different rounds? I've seen them get bigger and bigger every year, which is interesting. And sometimes earlier and earlier stage, which is a weird correlation because it means you're taking a bigger risk, at least I think as an investor. But what I've seen is rounds are getting bigger and bigger and they're happening earlier and earlier. It's a little worrisome for me, honestly, but that's, that's what I've been noticing. For, for the listeners out there who are gearing up for around fundraising, especially in a pandemic, what advice would you have that it may have been completely different than a year ago about taking funds, about choosing those relationships wisely, and, and like you said, being more capital efficient? I think you hit the nail on the first thing I would say is be more capital efficient, especially in our industry. The sales cycles are extremely long unlike maybe in a B2C environment and maybe even in a, in a market that is more growth than, than decrease, that might work. I would say today, number one is reduce your burn. The second thing that I would say is think very carefully about who you're taking money from. And th this is when, just like I read 50% of marriages, or I think so 50% of marriages end in divorce. I think everybody's heard that, but seven out of 10 times it's because of financial and I, I would relate that to startups as well in the sense that when business isn't going good, you got to be careful you have around the table. Many people will, will try to do different things. And this is where investment terms matter. Drag along rights. Like, can the investor force you to sell? That's a huge one. And I'm not a lawyer, so I won't, I won't speak to, all, to the specifics, but make sure you read the drag along rights. That's one of the most important clauses that I always read. Make sure you read your founder vesting rights. 
your acceleration clauses, single or double trigger acceleration, read about your rights post-termination in case you ever do get terminated. Do you get to still vote or is it only the active common majority who gets to vote or is it all the common majority? Minute things that make a huge difference in down markets. Who has more board seats? Who has board control? You're not going to think about it in the 10 years of a growth market, but when that recession hits every 10 years, people see things very, very differently. And I would hate to be a founder in a position in a company that I no longer have a stake in or, or whatever the, the, the condition might be. So I would really strongly you to not take money from anyone. In some sense, I'd rather take less money from somebody who I'd rather work with than to risk it all and get twice as much money. Because in some sense, having more money is not a guaranteed win. With more money, you could spend it faster. Like you could still spend $2 million in 18 months or you could spend $1 million in 18 months. And at the end of the day, you end up at the same position sometimes. So don't always go for the more money. Make sure you read the clauses, lower your burn, make sure you have 24 months runway. That's what in investors are expecting today. Make sure you have a diverse team. People today expect gender diversity. Make sure you have... And make sure you, I would say, make sure that you personally take time for yourself. And I would say these days, especially with no travel, at least I personally have found it harder to relax. I'm the type of person who, like for me, a relaxing vacation is to travel Europe for a week and like see some beautiful sights. Unfortunately, that can't happen. I got to find different ways to unwind. And I, I would urge that for every startup founder, I know that one of the things that we often care about is the company and, and less so about ourselves because we see ourselves as the company, but you really are two different entities and make sure you are treating yourself right. Piggybacking on that, European travel is not open right now. What are, what are you doing to, to cope with that? What are, what are your new unwinding strategies? My girlfriend and I are renting an RV and we're going to RV across the state of Ontario or the wow. province is what we call them here. Never done that. Canada is actually one of the largest tourist attractions in the world is Canada and all the beautiful national parks that we have. And thankfully, some, some parks remain open even during COVID because camping is a relatively socially distant activity. It, it won't be the same as Europe, but it's something I've never done. And I think I'll, I'll enjoy it just as much. I like to wrap up my episodes with just some quick fire questions. Uh, the, the new unwinding, the, the RV across the province it was a great Kickstarter. But so some of our listeners out there, most of them are, are in the, the U.S. market, but, but looking to possibly expand into to Canada. What advice would you have for them being a Canada native and, and really focused on growing Toronto? I would say it's, it's a great place. Most American companies do have a Canadian headquarters. Not all, but um, many do. If you already have a partnership in the United States, what I found is typically the head office or where the main decision maker sit is in the United States. So you have a foot up in the sense that sometimes through mandates, you can just expand your technology into the into other geographic regions. For us, it's actually harder, I find, to go the other way because we start with what I would call like like a shell office, not the main office. We use like an outside office. We first got to impress them 
And then we got to go and impress the guys in New York or in San Francisco or in Boston or in Chicago, wherever the company might be headquartered. We sort of have to sell twice. I think going the other way, sometimes you only need to sell once. Once you sell the headquarters and they know it works, they can mandate it out. The other great thing is we speak English here. We do have French, which, which is about 20% of policies in Canada are French language. But that means 80% of the market is still for you, even if you don't support French. We do have different policy wordings. So for, for example, our policy check so solution had to be trained on the wordings in Canada and in the United States. But some things, let's say, for example, you are a company that helps them identify opportunities to upsell. I don't necessarily think you're going to have the same problem because you're looking at financial information, like what is the premium, how much more could we get, etc. And less on the wording. So you might not have that. And then finally, I would say Canada is a great place to have a, an office. We have really, really friendly tax benefits for companies that invest in what we call science research and economic development. So if you're doing core research and machine learning, you can get back like 60% of the amount you invest, which is a really, really good deal. It means half the salary for an engineer who makes, let's say 200K a year, pretty good deal. So don't come stealing my engineers, but <laughs> I do recommend Canada as a place for business. From a work perspective, what problems do you enjoy working on most? Problems for the agency, problems for the carrier, a mix of both? Never thought about that. I mean, I'm, I'm a technologist at heart. What I get excited about is how can we apply this technology to a real world problem? The real world problem could like be my, like minute in some sense or boring. Like, a lot of people maybe say insurance is boring, but I get excited about the fact that we're bringing AI to insurance. I think I'd be just as excited if we were bringing AI to medicine, AI to legals. To me, it doesn't matter too much. Like that's where, where my joy comes in. When I think about who do I like working more for, the companies with more problems. Then I get more excited because I'm like, excellent, <laughs> I can solve even more stuff for you. But it's not one specific segment that interests me. It's just the concept of technology and Likewise, I'm always interested to learn about insurance. I don't consider myself an expert and, and my favorite thing is to learn more. What are some of the insurance components that you're most focused on learning now these days? Commercial, just because of the realities of where we are. And I would love to learn about reinsurance. So today we only touch like brokers and carriers. Obviously reinsurance is a huge part of the industry. Would love to figure out how we can work with reinsurance partners. We don't work with TPAs. We don't work with MGAs. Like there's so many other things about insurance that people tell me about. And I know that like there's something there, but I'm very focused on commercial and even more so we're in the property and casualty space. We do a lot of cyber, inland marine, agriculture, aerospace, boiler and machinery, contractors, equipment, ENO, DNO. Like that's where a lot of my learnings have been. And even just there, I know I'm just grazing the surface. Like there's so much more underneath. My journey is just starting. It's been five years at this point that I've been working in the insurance industry, specifically after the textbooks and still learning every day. Lastly, what problems do you see Chisel solving five years from now? I think today we are very much in the data acquisition phase and problems where a lot of the low hanging fruit is just like, can I get this submission or application into my underwriting engine faster? Instead of having a CSR sit there and type it in for one to two hours, can I just get the information there faster? 
can I get more information in there? Because today, and this is the thing that kills me, they'll use 50 data points to underwrite and send a survey of 150 questions to the potential applicant. I'm like, oh my God, it's frustrating. As the person who has to fill in the applications, it's frustrating. On the flip side though, once you've gone through and you filled in these applications and you've collected the data, I think in five years, you can start to think about sort of like what Amazon does. Like, what are people in this neighborhood in California buy? What other people like you buy this 79% of the time? And that's where you have an opportunity to upsell. Hey, I see you live in Florida. I notice you have flood insurance and hurricane insurance. You don't have earthquake insurance and you live in an earthquake zone. Today, they just don't have the time, as I said, to do that because they're spending two hours just typing in. He wants flood insurance. He does not want hurricane insurance. They're not going to ask you why not which is where we can come in in a couple of years once we've gathered the data and we're past this initial phase of can we just get data out of documents? We can think about predictive underwriting, more intelligent forms of underwriting, uh, more intelligent claims processes just by being able to get the first notice of loss in faster and digitally we probably can prevent incidents in the future by doing some analysis. And I know there's a couple of companies working on like, let's just say, sensors to detect uh, moisture in the air and floods. And I think we'll find out where we can best leverage those technologies in a couple of years once we've done the analysis. Maybe we conclude, and it's unlikely because 50% of all claims are, are due to fire, uh, sorry, water damage and floods when it comes to houses. But if for some reason we end up concluding what the most important thing is actually the slope of the grade of the house, we found that even if you had a sensor, it doesn't matter if your house is at the bottom of a hill. There's a flood. Wonderful. The flood's catastrophic. So maybe the answer is you got to regrade your driveway. So it's the highest point that rather than the lowest point and you're not having water, then you don't need a sensor, right? We just don't know today. And I think it's because we're collecting data in five years, we'll have enough data to make informed decisions. This has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Where can people go to learn more about you and, and your work at Chisel? Chisel, just in case it, it sounds funny, spelled like the word C-H-I-S-E-L dot A-I. Check out our website. We have a lot of really great thought uh, leadership. We do a blog post once a week and a podcast once every two weeks where we chat about this stuff. Nothing salesy, just getting smart people talking about what problems do you see in the market? What do you need solved? Oftentimes with carriers and, and brokers themselves. And then if, if you do want to hear from me, you can check me out on Twitter probably, or uh, my LinkedIn is a great place to connect. I'm very active on LinkedIn. You want to message me and mail me, happy to chat. And if you want, my email is just G-L-O-Z-M-A-N at chisel.ai. Happy to get reached that way. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Ron, for, for joining us today on the Insurance Requirements Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That does it for this edition of Insurance Requirements. If you haven't already, check out our website, howyouinsurethat.com, where you'll find episode archives as well as our blog where we tackle different insurance topics from today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, pass it along to a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, I'm your host, Andrew Perel.